Hello, happy November, and welcome to episode 29. Thank you for joining today as we continue to look at some films and, in some cases, some movies. Is there a difference? Well, some may say, well, yeah, of course there is. What kind of question is that? You have to wonder what Lauren Bacall would have to say to that. After all, if you've listened to Silver Screeners before, then you know her words of wisdom that open up each of these episodes. It's not an old movie if you haven't seen it. On today's show, I am sincerely and honestly thrilled to introduce Davey A. from the podcast I'd Give That 10 Minutes and the YouTube channel of the same name. He hails from Liverpool, England. He and I first crossed paths online back in the summer. We started following each other on Twitter. We listened to each other's shows. I was fortunate enough to be invited onto his show in August, and we had a great conversation. And now, our schedule's finally worked out so that I can return the favor. We will be talking about the 1989 feature film Batman. And this is actually an episode topic that's gone through a couple of incarnations over the past few months. Back in June, episode 12, I looked at the 1978 classic Superman starring Christopher Reeve. Originally, episode 12 was going to look at both Superman and Batman together, and the weekly poll question at the time was, which superhero is your preference? But just as everything was getting pulled together, the news broke that very same week that the director of Superman, Richard Donner, passed away. So my feeling was that it would have been poor taste to ask people which movie they'd pick as their go-to that particular week. So the focus ended up being just Superman, sort of as a tribute to him. I was a little disappointed to put Batman on hold, but in the end, it worked out perfectly, because not too long after that, Dave and I met on Twitter. We began talking, I learned of his immense passion for Batman, and so here we are now, all Batmaned up and ready to go. So this movie was directed by Tim Burton, it stars Michael Keaton as the caped crusader slash Bruce Wayne, Jack Nicholson as the Joker, and Kim Basinger as photographer Vicky Vale, who, of course, becomes the apple of our hero's eye, and he hers. He's a nighttime vigilante superhero in the DC Universe. DC stands for Detective Comics. That was the company that put out the original comics way back in the day. It's where Batman debuted following the success of the Superman character. But what makes Batman different from other superheroes like Superman and Wonder Woman, he doesn't really have any superpowers, not really. He's a human being who experienced significant trauma in his childhood when a mugger held him and his parents up and shot his mom and dad dead in front of him right there in the alleyway. From that situation, he made it his life mission to fight criminals, which he does while wearing a bat suit. He's a millionaire whose real name is Bruce Wayne, so like Superman's Clark Kent and Wonder Woman's Diana Prince, he keeps his alter ego a secret, preferring to do his things shrouded in anonymity. He lives in the fictional Gotham City, drives around in his Batmobile, and indulges in gadgets and technology to get him out of tough scrapes. He's called the Dark Knight, the Caped Crusader, and sometimes simply Batman. The character was catapulted into the mainstream with a classic TV series starring Adam West, 120 episodes spread out over three seasons beginning in January of 1966. In July of 1966, West played the role in a feature film that was simply called Batman the Movie. And as you'll hear in a few moments, Davey and I talk a little bit about that incarnation. But the focus will be on the arguably less campy, full-blown, big-budget treatment for the silver screen that was released in the summer of 1989 when we picked up the newspaper and saw the ads for Tim Burton's new flick. I don't want to say much more in this intro, though, so join me as we step back into that sequel-drenched final year of the so-called Decade of Greed, or the Yuppie Decade, when the likes of Ghostbusters 2, Karate Kid 3, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, 
Star Trek 5, Beverly Hills Cop 2, Lethal Weapon 2, Friday the 13th Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan, A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 5, The Dream Child, Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Do you see where I'm going with this? They all took turns gracing the airwaves with TV and radio ads, continuing their own franchises, and some soared with the Eagles in terms of box office intake, Others crashed and burned like the Pepsi Challenge. Who else, by the way, is old enough to remember that publicity stunt? Raise your neon bracelet-covered hand if you do. Let's step back into that 1989 summer with one of the biggest Batman fans I've ever been lucky enough to cross paths with. The one and only, the fun and always enthusiastic Davey A. He's actually prepared some behind-the-scenes fun facts for today's show, so much obliged. Dave, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining today. Well... First of all, um, thanks for having me, Frank. Uh, it's always a pleasure to be a guest on anybody's show. So it means a lot to be asked. Hey, that's a two-way street, you know. Hey, why don't you get us started with a little bit about yourself and your show, which for you listeners, again, it's called I'd Give That 10 Minutes. My name's Davey A, a UK guy who's a nerd, a geek, whichever terminology you prefer. And I'm the host of a podcast called I'd Give That 10 Minutes, a show where we talk about TV shows, movies, pop culture, geeky references, video games, seasonal references like Christmas, Halloween, whatever, whatever the mood takes us, basically. We just shoot the breeze, but whatever is on our minds. But it's usually kind of retro, geeky-based topics. I am a father. I'm an amateur gamer. I'm a nerd. I'm a huge Batman fan. I'm a sci-fi fan. I'm a comic book fan. You name it, there's probably some sort of fandom integrated into my genetics, so I'm going to be a fan follower. And it, it's kind of what got us bonding. And again, it's nice to be invited on a show where it's going to be about a, to- a topic that I love. So, yeah. If you want to get involved, like uh, before I take over this show completely, which I'm not intending on doing, Frank. We'll get to that later, but there's a, w- a way to follow me and, and, and listen to me and enjoy the content that I'm putting out in the world. But yeah, that's me. A simple guy who's a geek at heart. You know what? You're not alone. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully. Absolutely not. So we first crossed paths on Twitter. We did. And I honestly don't remember, maybe you do, I don't, but who found, quote unquote, found whom first. But I remember that once we began following each other, I got a direct message from you saying, thanks for the follow. And I responded saying, thank you too. And the conversation just began. It was literally as simple as that. I just, I think I stumbled across you because with you being a big movie fan and a movie boffin and a very knowledgeable guy in terms of movie trivia, it appealed to me. Me being, I wouldn't be saying I'm, I'm as much of a movie fan as yourself. You know a lot more than I do, but I do know my first year. And I found that it was definitely something that can appeal to what I like to watch and what I like to learn about. So, yes, made contact to, to see if you were interested in, in doing a collaboration, much like we're doing today. And like you say, conversation hits off. We found ourselves being fans of very similar topics and similar genres. So, you know, we've just become, um, I don't use the same buzz and buddies, but we became buzz and buddies via audio means so yeah it's just the sky's the limit now where, where we take this is our own uh, our own choice our own destiny maybe works for me yeah no i mean we this is i think maybe the third or fourth time that we have hooked up over zoom and it's been great every time the one thing that i've always really enjoyed every time we and i have spoken over zoom is your positive energy and it's it's authentic positive energy and i mean that that's what i really that's the kind of thing i'm drawn to is when people just are enthusiastic about the things they love and 
your passion for everything that you talk about in all of your episodes. I said to you before, I binged your entire show throughout the summer when I was doing some landscaping outside. I'm shoveling mulch and I got my earbuds in and I'm on Spotify and I just have it on continue. I went through the whole thing and then I guessed it on your show. You were generous enough to welcome me onto your show about a month ago. And yeah, it's just been, it's been a great journey so far. I agree. It's always nice to have someone on as a guest who has been listening and appreciates what's being put out there. I've never been one to kind of aspire for like notoriety or fame, but it's been nice to have people say, oh, I've enjoyed your podcast. I've enjoyed your episodes. I've enjoyed the social media content that you put out. I always maintain that it was um, a hobby for me, but it's not. Being a podcaster to me is not is no longer just a hobby. It's something I'm passionate about doing, something I intend to keep doing as long as people are willing to listen and have me talking at them and sometimes with them. You know, with a few laughs along the way, I don't feel like I'm forcing myself upon people, but it's, it's been a great journey and it's a year in and I'm just going to keep going with it until it becomes not fun anymore. And let's face it, as a fellow podcaster yourself, it's an enjoyable journey. So there's nothing to stop us continuously doing it. So, Well, that's just it. I don't see it stopping being fun at all. I mean, you're, you've been doing it a little bit longer than I have. This is now I'm coming up on six months and you have a full year in already, but it's been it's been great. It's nice to know that there is a creative outlet out there for people who have a passion for something, whatever it may be. I mean, the number of podcasts they have out there, they have true crime podcasts, they have stand-up comedy, they have podcasts on basket weaving. You name an activity or an interest and there is a podcast out there. It's just a great outlet for people to have. And it's not surprising that the number of podcasts that are out there really quadrupled over the past year and a half. Exactly. With the lockdowns and everything, what more can you do? Stick a microphone in front of you. You've got to stay indoors anyway. So just talk about something. People will listen. And hey, who doesn't love a good basket weaving podcast? I'm going to be looking for one of them straight away. (laughs) (laughs) The focus of our conversation today, anyway, we're going to have a lot of collaborations. But the focus of today's conversation is Batman. As you said, you are a huge Batman fan. And there are... (laughs) So many ways that we could approach this, but what we talked about was the focus on the 1989 film. Of course, we can talk about any of the other films, any of the other animated series, but disclaimer, I have not seen too much the animated films, the animated series, so I wouldn't have too much to contribute, but that does not mean that we can't talk about it because I would love to get your input on them because you're the Batman aficionado here, so (laughs) I'm going to be yielding the floor to you a lot. Well, thank you. (laughs) The first question that I want to throw out there to you is talk about the first time that you saw this movie. It was released in the summer of 1989. And what was the buildup to it like for you? When did you first hear that they were, if you can remember, when you first heard that they were making this movie, the excitement level, when you actually saw it, did it meet your expectations? What What were your thoughts afterwards, especially when it came out on home video, if you revisited it? Well, I must admit, I didn't get the opportunity to see it in the cinema when it was released. I was 11 at the time. Uh, no, I was I was 12. I apologize. I was 12. And at the time, I think it was still rated quite highly in terms of the content that featured in it back in the day. So I didn't get the opportunity to go to the cinema. I did wait until it was released on VHS to see it at home. However, the build-up was insane. Being a comic book fan for pretty much my entire life, every billboard had a bat picture on it. Every bus that went past had a bat insignia. There were children running around dressed with you know bat t-shirts or bat costumes. The first kind of mainstream kind of school talk, there was collectible cards being issued in, in some of the local stores. 
with a, a piece of questionable chewing gum, like I'm talking the really awful kind of chalky stuff that just dissolves straight away. But you got rid of that because the, you got about four or five art cards with scenes from the films and a, a, a factoid on the back. And they were all swapping and trading and you see all these cool images. And that's where I first kind of started talking on the, on the school grounds about it. And then obviously seeing, like I say, billboards and posters and stuff and the hype was just insane. A really great mainstream comic book character given and a great movie choice, a great movie um, build up and, you know, merchandising and all the TV commercials and like I say costume stuff that came up based on the movie. You, you couldn't help but notice there was something about Batman everywhere and the hype was real and well-deserved. When I got that VHS for the first time, I think I must have broken it within a, a few days and had to go and buy another copy of it because I watched it that many times. What an amazing movie and still really watchable now. As we're watching, it's on the background because it has to be. It's too good not to play while we're talking about it. I love it. I love it. So I really love the fact that we're talking about Batman here and I'm looking at you and right behind you, you have the movie playing on the screen. Underneath the movie, you have the DVD covers, you have the action figures, you have all of this paraphernalia. You're wearing the Batman shirt. I sure am. Sure am. Yeah, I can't help it. I love the bat. What can I say? It's a, probably the most influential thing that's affected my life in terms of fandom. You know, the imagery it brings, it's just so iconic. Yes, there's a multitude of choices out there in terms of superheroes and comic book styles and characters and whatnot, but the bat really kind of, I don't know, it just really struck a chord with me. The whole, the whole backstory, the struggles he went through to become who he is now, I just, I just love him. And I don't think I'll ever get bored of looking for original new versions of Batman, like the, you know, the multiverse version they're doing, all these different movie iterations. It's still watchable. Yes, there are good and bad approaches to all these different versions of Batman, but ultimately it's the main premise, the main storyline that keeps them all together. They try and stick true to the original source material. And, and I love that. I love exploring new ways of seeing Batman, whether it be animated or live action. So there's a plethora of choices and I love them all. Glad to hear you say that. You actually just answered what was my next question. I was going to ask, what version of the character do you find the most compelling? Because when the comic book debuted in 1939, he was originally envisioned to be this grim, vigilante type of character. Robin didn't even get introduced until, I think, about a year in or so. Something like that, yeah. Something like that. And then, of course, the Adam West TV series in the 1960s came along and may have introduced the character to new generations and may have made Batman a household name. But as far as the original vision of the character, there are some purists, and I don't use the term in a derogatory sense, but there are some Batman purists who say that the TV series dumbed it down made it more palatable for mainstream audiences. That, that was the feeling that some of the production team behind the 1989 movie had because they wanted to return the character to his roots of being this violent and brooding kind of a character as opposed to how and whap and kazam and you know all the sound effects that you would see throughout the TV show. I had real issues with the sound effects. You know, I loved the Adam West show. I've got to admit it. I did. Lo- I loved the campness of it. It was overly acted in certain scenes. It was very colourful. You know, some, the way that some of the camera angles were kind of on a, a weird kind of pivot. They're coming towards you, but they're sort of at a right angle or something at the way they, they shot it. But all these, like like you say, thwaps and kapows and kaplunks and so on. That, no, that's not what's meant to happen. But it, it was aimed at a younger audience and they were supposed to encourage things like merchandise sales and figures and comic books and whatnot. So yes, dumbed down, like you, like you say, but still really enjoyable. 
you know, you, you don't always want to feel a bit sort of angry, bruisey, moody about a character that's gone through what is quite considerable turmoil. If you if you look at the backstory that they've gone through to get to where he is, but a very light-hearted way to portray the character. And I, I dare say without the Adam West show, I might have had quite a large gap between seeing Batman because I didn't read all the comics. There's a lot of the comics I didn't get to experience. So mostly it was the media aspect of Batman that I saw first before I started retracing my steps and getting collectibles and comics and, and T-shirts and whatnot. It was mostly the, the media. So the films and the TV shows got me back into something I grew up with when I was a young young boy. It had to have an Adam West inclusion. Without it, there would have been quite a hefty gap. So I'm, I'm glad it's there. I'm glad it's out there. But there was even two animated movie spin-offs based on Adam West's version as well, which were fairly recently released. You know, Adam West, sadly, is no longer with us, but when he was, he voice-acted his version of Batman for two animated movies featuring, uh, I think, William Shatner as the voice of Two-Face as well. So based on the, the live-action show, but an animated movie version, and I, I loved them. thought they were really good. Nice to have a, a nod back to the old-style Batmans we all grew up watching on a Saturday morning. But I like it, yeah. I think it's a show that's worth watching, even if you are a serious Batman fan who appreciates the dark, gothic, moody version that we all are used to seeing these days. You need a light-hearted approach just to make you feel better. You know, why Why shouldn't the Joker be punched in the face and you get a comical sound and he just says, ow, instead of having his face torn off or whatever it might be? So, yeah, sure. Let's have a comical version. It's just like the Schumacher movies when they did um, Batman and Robin and uh, Batman Forever. Very slapstick you know, humorous and not taking itself too seriously. Total flip of the coin, pardon the term, than the Tim Burton versions. But ultimately, they all portray the same message, which is cool superhero kicks butt in a cool way. And that is one thing that I realized, because I had not seen this movie all the way straight through in about, I would say, I think it's fair to say about 30 years. I saw it in the theater when it first came out. And when I was, I was 15, the summer of 89, it was the summer after my freshman year of high school and it was all the rage. Everybody was talking about it. As you said, the t-shirts were everywhere, the lunch boxes, the, all of the merchandise finally saw it in the theaters. And I can remember that at that time, the only Tim Burton movies that I was familiar with were Beetlejuice and Pee Wee's Big Adventure. So Tim Burton to me anyway, was not yet a recognizable name and did not have a recognizable style. So having only seen it all the way straight through that once 30 years ago, I didn't quite know what to make of it. Now I watched it in preparation for this episode and I'm listening to the music by Danny Elfman and I'm looking at all the little sight, I don't want to call them sight gags, but all the little tricks and all the little trademark stamps that define Tim Burton. I was amazed with how much of a Tim Burton movie this is. And I'd completely, yeah. going back and revisit, I appreciated it on a whole new level because of that. Really is. I mean, it does show his, his style of directing has always been kind of gothic and alternative. And the, the imagery he's used in the majority of his movies have been considered very kind of artistic. But it shows, I mean, Gotham City in, in the Keaton version is, is very gothic, literally. Lots of tall spires and, you know, uh, gargoyles on statues and lots of dark lit sort of alleyways the place looks like you don't want to live there you know that the whole city is struggling with crime and poverty it betrays well on screen he does a great job tim burton's always been one of my favorite directors and one of his greatest movies in my opinion the guy has such a fantastical imagination 
Hmm. I mean, you take a look at some of his work. I mean, this is before Edward Scissorhands and this was before Nightmare Before Christmas and, you know, this Corpse Bride and the Alice in Wonderland movies. And you take a look at his entire body of work and there's always that trademark, like you said, gothic, dark sense of humor that that just comes across. And if you're looking for a dark sense of humor, then a story like Batman, I think, fits the bill if the movie is going to focus on a character like the Joker. Exactly. And that's what a lot of people kind of didn't realize, I suppose, when they were going to watch a Batman movie. They kind of, you weren't considering that the Joker was going to be the bigger character in the film. Although it is a Batman movie, Joker stole the show, clearly. It's Jack Nicholson, isn't it? Let's face it, anything he's in is going to be worth watching. And you're not going to try and overshadow Jack Nicholson with an actor who, at the time, wasn't that very well known. It was a great gamble to choose Michael Keaton, especially when you, you think of the actors that could have been Actors including Pierce Brosnan, who turned down the role and then later regretted it for obvious reasons because it could have made him a lot of money. But again, he made the role his own. You couldn't imagine that version of Batman portrayed by anybody else now because it's it's Keaton's role. You just couldn't. But then you say that if it was a different actor back then, you would have been saying the same thing now. It was his role. You know, it was Mark Hamill as Batman back in the day. If he was if he was the only actor playing Batman at the time, then it would be his role. We know now he's the he's the voice of the Joker in the animated stuff, but any actor put in the suit, it would be their version. So while I'm saying that's Keaton's Batman and it's the only Batman worth watching in movies, then the same could be argued for any actor that was wearing the tights. It's just the choice. But I think it was an aspiring choice because he did so well off it. He's a good actor. I really like Michael Keaton. At the time, I knew him from uh, Beetlejuice. I knew him from Mr. Mom. I knew him mostly from his comedies. Yes. And I know he had done a drama, Clean and Sober, but I've never seen that, at least not yet. And there was a, I, was, I wanted to ask you if you were familiar with, I've never, I haven't read it, but I wanted to ask you if you were familiar with a Wall Street Journal article that was written, it was published when Michael Keaton was first announced as having been cast in the movie. And it was an anti-Keaton article it was basically oh yeah yeah. no it was it was actually pretty it it was pretty disparaging and the production team they were very surprised by it but they also took a certain amount of satisfaction that they were already getting that much publicity before they even picked up a camera the article said that the casting of michael keaton was quote ridiculous that the movie would be camping it up that it'll be like the tv series And the title of the article, if you or if anybody listening would like to look it up, the title of the article is Batman fans fear the jokes on them. Wow. That's quite a, it's almost like a damning article, isn't it? I suppose. Yeah. Like I said, I haven't read the full thing yet, but I got wind of the existence of this article from one of the bonus features on the DVD that I was taking a look at. And they showed the headline, but they showed a screenshot of the front page. So you saw maybe the first paragraph or so, but Tim Burton fought for Michael Keaton to get that role. They obviously had already done Beetlejuice together. He wanted Keaton for that role. He said that Keaton would be able to bring the kind of vulnerability that you had to believe Bruce Wayne was feeling in order for him to become what he became. Right. Okay. And had it been someone like Mel Gibson, Schwarzenegger, or any of the big action movie stars of the time, then you wouldn't have bought that they could be emotionally affected by anything. Do you know what? It kind of puts me in mind of, of Die Hard, with Bruce Willis at the time being only known for kind of comedies and theater work, TV shows. And then they took the gamble and put him as John McLean in Die Hard. 
and his career just skyrocketed from that. Sometimes taking a gamble on a semi-unknown actor pays off in dividends. Yeah, this is a classic example of that because Keaton had the last laugh. Number one, he laughed his way to the bank. Oh, yes. Two, <laughs> uh, he did the sequel, Batman Returns, with Tim Burton in 1992, which there it is right there behind you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Shameless plug. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen in 2014, he did a movie called Birdman? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. There's lots of nods to him because he, he was also in the, the Robocop reboot. And there was a nice right. nod to Batman in there when they said, um, can you do the suit in black? And I'm sure he looked at the camera at the time because it was kind of like, you know, black Batman kind of thing. But the fact that he's reprising his role now, he's in, he's in next year's uh, The Flash movie as the same Bruce Wayne Batman. So it, it just shows that he really is iconic enough to keep playing the same character and, and like i said he's made it his own version and it's really watchable excitement well i always liked him batman and no batman there's something about michael keaton that just it's a vibe he gives off he comes across as very relatable yes and i, I, know, I know i'm talking about the guy who's beetlejuice but he like when he does a movie like spotlight when he does a movie like mr mom even the serious scenes in Batman, when he's just simply staring at the Joker's commercial, he's wearing his eyeglasses, he's got a black shirt on, he's just simply, you know, you have the flashback to what happened to his parents when he was a kid. There's something about him that just seems, he just gives off this sense of, I'm the everyman. And I think that's what the Bruce Wayne character really needs. Because if you have a muscle head playing Bruce Wayne, then there's going to be no transition to being the caped crusader of course of course okay so he put the cape on but there's really not too much different about him yeah i think it it, it does have like, like you say he could have been you know some big muscly actor and it wouldn't be the same version he's obviously relying heavily on the molded armor so he doesn't have to keep his his physique in you know prime condition as long as he has the skills needed and in terms of michael keaton it's the amazing presence and acting skills he doesn't need to make himself look buff and ripped and be a martial arts expert that's what the stunt double's for. You know, it's all it's okay. That's all in hand. But it's it's his portrayal. His, it is, even with a mask on, you, you know, his eyes are covered with, with black makeup. You've only seen a bit of his face, but you still, you know, it's him. And the, the, the acting he portrays being encased in a rubber suit, you still, you still believe what he's trying to portray. And you, and you want to see more of it because of that. He does not camp it up, which is interesting exactly. because when you think of a Tim Burton movie, most people will tend to think campy. I keep coming back to Christoph Waltz in Big Fish. Okay. Not Big Fish, Big Eyes, Big Eyes. Ah, yeah. Big Eyes with Amy Adams and Christoph Waltz. And that was maybe about eight or nine years ago. And Christoph Waltz was a two-time Oscar winner. Tim Burton was Tim Burton. Amy Adams was, you know, of course, established actress. But Christoph Waltz, his performance was so cartoonish and so over the top that a lot of people were saying that it was a distraction. But that's Tim Burton's style. That's Tim Burton's style. So then you take a look at the way he wanted to approach the character of Bruce Wayne. It almost seems counterintuitive that this is Tim Burton wanting to go, at least as far as the Bruce Wayne half goes, wanting to go in the direction of more subdued and more introspective. Yeah, very relatable. I do like, I think there's only, for me, one kind of comedic line that Bruce Wayne has in it. And it's when... Alexander Knox and Vicky Vale are walking around the mansion and they see that room full of armor from around the world, different suits of armor. They say, where, where do you think they got this guy from? 
which way enters. Oh, it's Japanese. Well, how do you know? Well, because I bought it in Japan. And that's it. There's no research into it, the history. He just went to Japan and bought it, so it must be Japanese. <laughs> I love that. Love that. <laughs> yeah, he's got some he's got some great lines. And speaking of his lines, I wanted to ask you this. At the beginning of the movie, he's got those two thugs up on the roof, and yes. he's got one of them by the collar. He's dangling over the roof's edge, and the thug is saying to him, don't kill me, don't kill me. He says, I'm not going to kill you. I want you to tell all your friends about me. Well, who are you? And he goes, I'm Batman. That line, Michael Keaton suggested. Oh, okay. Initially, when the movie came out in 89, I read the novelization before I saw the movie. And in the novelization, what the thug says to him is, do you think you own the night? Batman's response is, I am the night. Oh. In the movie, what he says instead is, I'm Batman. And I can remember talking with someone Back in the day, it was right after I saw the movie. I'd read the book. I'd seen the movie. And they were actually complaining, not complaining, but they were actually saying it would have been so much better if he said, I am the knight. It would have been. I mean, he been. had re- revealed himself as Batman and you know, basically just naming himself. There's an element of more surprise, more mysterious about him. You know, who is this guy? You know, he's the knight, you know, the dark knight, hence the title. Yeah, it would have been interesting. Maybe to see like you did with the with Man of Steel, the recent Man of Steel movie, he didn't call himself Superman. It was the, the public who named him Superman. So maybe if they kind of went down that route, he was, although he's wearing this Bat costume, if he didn't refer to himself as Batman, but just like, you know, the knight or the, the shadowy person, whatever he wants to call himself, it would have been, yeah, a nice element to keep in. The, the mystery about it. Who is this guy? Well, he's the knight. And it would evolve from there. But at the end of the day, you're going to please everyone. In a, especially in a, in a Hollywood blockbuster to have that line in there because you know he's going to tell people exactly who he is it gets the rooms going up there it's not just a bat anymore he's Batman someone to be feared and terrified by and that's what I think sets Batman apart from so many other superhero characters because you have Superman who comes from another planet and he's here to fight for truth and justice in the American way and you have Batman who is more of a vigilante type who is really doing all this crime fighting because it's personal. With Superman, it's more of a universal, a duty, a responsibility that his father, Jarrell, passed on to him. You know, go to Earth and you are to be the protector. With Batman, all of his motivations, they all come from his own experience, his own tragedies. That adds a layer of substance to the Batman character that, with all due respect to Superman, I love Superman, the Superman character, I don't think, has that much substance to him. Mm-hmm. Which makes Batman, I think, just more of an intriguing character to, to think about if you're an actor, to interpret in any way that you do. If you're a writer, to take his stories in all of these different directions. I think there's just much more viability with yeah. the character of Bruce Wayne slash Batman than with Clark Kent slash Superman. I think because he's one of those heroes where he's not actually superpowered, you find yourself being behind them more. Yes, it's great to have super strength and flight and you know cling off walls and shoot webs and whatever it might be. But this is the guy who's just a human who's just got lots of gadgets, is very well trained in combat and detector skills and is referenced in um, the Justice League movie when Bruce Wayne's asked, what are your superpowers? And he says, well, I'm rich. 
that in itself is a good superpower. If endless <laughs> amounts of money, you could do whatever you want. But this guy is just he's just an average Joe with lots of technology and, and know-how trying to fight crime in his own way without the need for super abilities. And I think that's what really pushed me to back him because we all aspire to do more. We all aspire to help people. And if this guy, he's just, yes, he's well off, but if he's essentially just a guy who's put a cape on him and got in his car, tried to help people. And you, you feel he's more of a grounded superhero. He's more a believable character because he's not relying on otherworldly, you know, strength and stuff. He's just a one guy out there trying to make a difference. As, as a result, I've always been a fan of him because of that. He's more real, more real. Batman's just a symbol. You know, he's, he's an uh, inevitable, not inevitable. The other one, um, I'll get back to that one. But yeah, <laughs> he's, he's a symbol. I cannot, he's incorruptible. That was what he said. Yeah, he's incorruptible. Can't be destroyed as a symbol. He can do more damage and be more impactful on life. But I, I love it. He's, he's always outsmarting everybody. He's very clever, very intelligent. World's greatest detective, as he's also known by. So he's going to beat anyone by outsmarting them. And that's the key. Yes, he, he, know, he knows martial arts and he's got crazy gadgets and fast cars and, and the lifestyle, but he's got a very clever brain, a very clever mind. He's always thinking ahead to you know combat or crime scenes, whatever it might be. He's always one step ahead of the bad guys because he's a very intelligent person. And it just goes to show if you're brainy, you can do good things. Yes. I actually have a question that is right now off the top of my head that I'm burning to ask you. Okay. Which, you know, we talked about Bruce Wayne versus Clark Kent, but as yes. far as the leading lady is concerned, which character do you think is a better, just in terms of the wit, the style, the personality, the sass, we have Lois Lane in Superman, we have Mary Jane in the Spider-Man movies, and I know I'm crossing over into Marvel territory here. That's okay, that's okay. Um, say Marvel, DC, there's Vicky Vale, Kim Basinger in Batman. Is there one that you find yourself saying that's the character that I really enjoy watching the most? Amazing ladies. I mean, as biased as it is, they're both DC choices for me. I've got two. One is Amy Adams, because I thought she did really well as Lois Lane in the more recent run of Superman and DC movies. This is no, um, no kind of dissing of any kind to Margot Kidder, because she was a fantastic Lois Lane. Got to give her props. But I, I've loved Amy Adams' interpretation of Lois. And also, to me, an obvious choice, but Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman, Selena Kyle from Batman Returns. Great on-screen presence, great character choice, great actress choice to play the role, to be fair. But they, they stand out. Yes, there's, a again, a multitude of superhero films with, with feminine leads or, you know, really good supporting characters that are, that are female. But... Certainly those two stand out for me as really iconic, really impactful, and stole a lot of the scenes when they were on point. So, yeah, those two particular ones for me. What about yourself? I very much like Mago Kidder as Lois Lane, but I think it's kind of a mental thing for me because I grew up with those Superman movies. She, I mean, I think as written, the Lois Lane character is great. She's just great. She is gutsy. She is sassy. She deliberately puts herself in harm's way to get the story. She's aggressive, sometimes going into the territory of unlikable in certain moments. But the way that Margot Kidder just brought the fierceness to that character, the way she just channeled all of that, I just thought it was the perfect counterpart to Christopher Reeves' version of Clark yes. Amy Adams is, to me, one of the greatest actresses of her generation. Don't get me wrong. I love her. 
But to me, Mago Kidder is always going to be Lois Lane. It's like Christopher Reeve. He, he's the ultimate Superman. And I don't get me wrong, I love Henry Cavill's version of it. Really do. I'm very excited to see where he's taking the character. But Christopher Reeve is always going to be my go-to Superman. It was just fantastic. Again, a great casting choice. A gamble, some people might have said, but what an iconic role to be portrayed by such an amazing actor. And I like the fact that there was a nod to Christopher Reeve in Man of Steel. There was a, a scene where, for just a brief second, his face was was um, put over Henry Cavill, just for a brief second before he took off. As just a little nod to the roots, you know, the acting roots that it came from. I love that about it. I'm going to have to go back and take a look at that. I didn't know that. Yeah. Maybe I should have said spoiler for first, but there's a scene when... It's when Zod brings the uh, the terraforming machine down and it's slowly pulsating into the earth and destroying bits and bobs. So Kal-El Superman is about, to, is about to launch up and destroy the machine. And this energy beam's kind of on him. It's kind of holding him down. And just for a second, uh, Christopher Reeve's face is superimposed over his just for a second, just before he, take, he takes off and destroys the machine. And again, it's a really good nod to Christopher Reeve's, a good homage to him. But it's, a, it's just for a brief moment. It's probably... A second, maybe one and a half seconds at most, but it's noted and you do see it. If you're looking for it, you do see it. And it's a really nice thing to see. And you know, even if it is only a second and a half, that's enough. Totally. You don't want it to be overkill. You don't want it to be beating the point into the ground. Just that acknowledgement of you're not forgotten and you're still part of this reinvention of the franchise. Exactly. You are always going to be part of the Superman legend. Anyway. It is. It's, it is literally a legend. Where would we be now if Superman itself didn't take off, if you pardon the pun, as a movie? Yeah, yeah I know. Terrible pun there. But, you know, that's yeah, what yeah, I did. I see what you did there. I like that. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yes, took off. But yeah, it's air I say without it. Where would superhero movies be now without such an amazing start in the first Superman film and the sequels and the various other characters that got their own films because of the success of this one? It's set a benchmark, one that is rarely matched these days. If the characters are not characters you care about, you've lost the audience. At least you've lost me as an audience member. Mm, It has to be a story that you can get engaged in. It has to be characters that you actually become invested in. The first two Superman movies, at least, did just that. And you're right. I don't think that Batman, I don't think the 89's Batman would have been made had it not been for the success of Superman. Yeah, it's it's definitely one of those movies that really kind of, like I said, set a benchmark. Without it, we may not have the success that we had going forward with a lot of movie franchises, not not just superhero movies, but movies in general. The, the effects that we use in that film, casting choices, the scripts, the dialogue, the visuals, it, it, as, a, as a package, it's just, it's still so iconic now, still really watchable and does resonate with a lot of people. So it's recommended beyond belief. You just said resonating with a lot of people. Let me ask you this. Superhero movies, comic book movies, quote unquote, or as some people will say, not so nicely, uh, what do they call them? Not comic books. They'll call them funny books or joke books. Yeah, yeah. But I think a strong case can and should be made for this genre to be seen as just as to be seen as filled with just as much artistic integrity as any self-serious drama that is quote-unquote Oscar bait every fall season. I agree completely. Yes, bad reputations for comic book movies, the source material for a lot of people is laughable. You know, why would we want to follow a guy who's been bitten by a spider and jumps on a wall? It's a, it's the backstories. It's, it, it's what drives them. 
you know, a lot of these superheroes, they've gone through some real trauma that's resulted in them wanting to be, you know, a crime fighter or become a bad guy or deal with a personal situation that people who are reading these comics and watching these films have gone through themselves. A lot of these comic book movies, these comic book writers, they do use real situations that them or the writers have been in to make these characters feel more believable. You know, Peter Parker, Spider-Man, just a teenager, dealing with teenage life, lost his relatives, he's struggling with heartache, he's struggling with a family loss, and yet he's got the responsibility of trying to save the world, save the city, and keep his family safe. These are all, you know, compelling stories that are worth seeing, reading, watching, listening to. So, yeah, it's vital storytelling, vital movies. I would definitely fly the flag of saying they are important enough to be considered you know, worth watching and worth, you know, awarding, rewarding. So, yeah, very important. And they're oftentimes accused of being nothing more than just mercenary moneymakers, but I would counter that argument by saying <laughs> every other genre of film, filmmaking, any kind of art, really. I mean, what artist does not want to be heard or seen? We're podcasters. Of course, we want people to listen to our shows. If you write music, of course, you'd be thrilled if someone booked you for a gig. If you're a painter, of course, you'd be thrilled if a museum says we're going to showcase and you know, we'll have a, uh, an exhibit of all of your work. If you're a filmmaker, you want to sell tickets. So exactly. those who say that comic book movies are just out there for the profits, I would say, I would say the same could be said really about any of it. So Look that, at all those um, all those mainstream blockbusters like you know like Titanic for example you know huge massive blockbuster made multiple billions of dollars and is based on a true real life situation albeit it's been dramatized to make it more of a sellable movie but the backstory of it is a real event that shocked the world and caused grief for a lot of people and yet here we are all going to the cinema buying the tickets to see the film buying a Titanic poster following the actors on social media, reenacting things when they're on weddings and stuff. They're all stood on the end of a fake boat with their arms out saying, I'm the king of the world. And yet it was a tragedy that affected a lot of people. So movies aren't just about the ticket sales. They aren't just about merchandise. It's about telling a really compelling story that you can believe in. It doesn't matter if they're wearing tights or they're wearing a suit. It's what is behind it that is important. It's the whole idea of storytelling. Exactly. The whole idea of storytelling, whether we're talking centuries ago when it was the origins of mythology, whether it is 20th century, if we're talking about the adventures of Luke Skywalker, whether we're talking about the Titanic tragedy, whether we're talking about the bombing of Pearl Harbor in 1941, and then they had the movie with Ben Affleck and Josh Hartnett a few years after Titanic, not too much longer after. There is always a human story to tell. And I think that a lot of well-intended, well-meaning artists will take the human element of a lot of these tragedies, maybe fictionalize them, maybe not. And the whole idea is if we personalize this, then that will make people invested in the story. But I really want to make sure that before I forget that I do ask you about how you, not too long ago, getting back to Batman, not too long ago, you went to see the Batmobile. I did. You okay, talk about this yes. exhibit. Where was it? What was it all about? What was it like? Okay, so where I work, there's a, this was over the summer holidays, the summer vacation for the American listeners out there. Hello. Basically, it was over a period of, I think, about six weeks. But every Saturday during those six weeks, there was an event um, in the town where I work. And on this particular one, it was the last of the six weeks, there was a superhero event, which comprised of a mixture of both Marvel and DC heroes coming to visit, you know, 
speaking to the passers-by, interacting with different stores, photo opportunities, and, and so on. But And I found out quite sort of late on in that week it was happening, but I was told the 89 Batmobile was going to be there. So, of course, naturally, I started getting a bit giddy, getting excited, thinking, oh, my God, it's going to be there. I can get a photograph with it. And it fell on a week when I wasn't working on the day this was happening. So I had no work commitments. I could just go and visit and take photographs and be all, all nerdy about it. So to make it look legitimate and not just like some old guy nerding out over a car, I took my children with me, who are, to be fair, they are big superhero fans. So it looked like it was a legitimate situation of the dads taking their kids to see Batman and Superman and Spider-Man and whoever else. And it's all perfectly normal. Did the boys get in any photographs? No, they did not, because I pushed them to one side because it was all about me. <laughs> I'm going to get in this shot with the Batmobile. I'm going to stand next to it. I'm going to shake Batman's hand. Um, so I was quite selfish, admittedly, but um, it was a thoroughly enjoyable day. It was an amazing looking car with even the gun turrets raising and lowering and things opening and firing off. I was in awe. I was just in awe. The car is so much nicer up close than it looked in the movie. And I know it's in the background right now, but seeing it in the flesh, as it were, as big and as impactful as it is, it just makes me love that movie and that version of Batman even more because that particular Batmobile is my favourite. Out of all the versions we've seen, that one is still, to me, the best one. So I had a very good day looking at superheroes and being literally geeked out. And I was clad in Batman regalia, Batman T-shirt. I was wearing Batman socks. I had a Batman hat on. I looked like a tourist, but I kind of was really, I kind of was just a big DC Batman tourist and was obsessed. But I, I loved it. And, to, and in my defense, the boys did get to have a lot of interaction with superheroes and photographs with them and, and stuff like that. So they did get to enjoy it, but it was mostly about me and my need to see the Batmobile and talk with the Batman and so on. So yeah, I had a great day. It was great fun. Great fun. I saw the picture that you had posted. Not too oh, much yes. that day. That was, that was, that was great. <laughs> That was a labor of love because the actual picture had quite a lot of detail in the background, which I had to remove. So I spent ages kind of using a digital uh, tool to remove all the backdrops so it could just be the focus was just on me and the Batmobile, not the passersby, not the buildings that was parked in front of, just me, the Batmobile, and my, again, my need to be DC'd up. I do have several trivia questions here for you, all based on the 1989 film. And I'm not trying to be Mr. Smart Alec, and I'm not trying to <laughs> put you in an awkward position or anything. You knew these questions were coming, though. So I just want to make sure that we do get these in because I don't know if I would get them, but you're much more of a, you're so much of a Batman fan that I think that this is probably going to be a no brainer for you. So, <laughs> pressure. Oh, no. <laughs> We shall see, we shall see. If anything, just something to enjoy. So, all right. First question I have for you. All of these are from the movie itself, from the 89 movie. So, question number one. Name the theater that little Bruce Wayne and his parents are walking out of in the flash. Oh, my God. Oh, no. I can't remember what it is. I'll give you a hint. It begins with an M, as in Mary. No, I can't think what it is. And the second, the second I hear it, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kick myself for not, for not knowing it. I'll give you another hint. You live in the UK. You live in England. I've, I literally, I can't get it. Can't. The Queen's counterpart. The Queen's counterpart. The Queen's husband. What's what's a word for? For a... well, I was, I was, I was thinking king for some reason. I don't know why. Uh, maybe I'm getting oh it God. all wrong. Maybe my references here are completely misguided. 
the name I don't, of the, I don't uh, think it's that. I think it's just my knowledge isn't as good as I thought it was. Oh my god! You can ask Tommy M, Frank. And ends with a ch. Oh my! Oh, it's the monarch, isn't it? That's it. That's it. That's it. You got it. Yes. Oh, I should have got that quicker. Oh, God. You got it. That's the, that's that's just it. You got it. <laughs> Thank you. Question number two that I have for you. This isn't really a one answer response. This is more of a just explain briefly kind of a thing. Okay. Billy D. Williams, Lando Calrissian, of course, from Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi and The Rise of Skywalker. Mm-hmm. Billy D. Williams plays Harvey Dent. He's the, the Harvey Dent character is the DA in Gotham City. Yes. And you would think that Harvey Dent would have been played by Billy D. Williams again when the character reappears in Batman Forever, but instead Tommy Lee Jones played him. Why did Correct. Billy D. Williams not return for the role? Oh, oh. Now, I'm not sure what the reason is. I only have one comment about this, and that's it's a complete side note, but just tie in really well in that there's now been a re release of comics based on the 1989. Batman, where Billy D. Williams' version of Two-Face is in it, albeit on pages and not film. They've, they've drawn him as a series of comic books, as a spin-off, where this does happen. But to answer your question, I don't know why. I don't know why. I, it's not something I've ever looked into, to be honest. I just Because they went in a different direction on the second movie and he wasn't in it. I just, I don't know why that happened. Well, Tommy Lee Jones was hot off of his Oscar win for The Fugitive and the producers really wanted him for the role. And so okay. they got Billy D. Williams and they said, even though you signed a contract with us, even though there is a contract between us that you play this character, we're going to buy out your contract. Wow. Yeah. He's still they got bought paid. out Lando. They bought out Lando. <laughs> he still got paid, but he didn't get to play the role again in Batman Forever. To be fair, it was a completely different movie. I don't think Billy D. Williams' version would have been as good in that because they went in a totally different way with the Schumacher version. So I'm I'm not sure if it would have worked anyway. So I think it's it's a it was a good choice to bring in Tommy Lee Jones. He's a much better actor for that particular character. So yeah, I, I, I don't I don't see it working myself, but you know, alternate universes. Maybe Billy D. Williams was in Batman Forever. We don't know. It would have been like you said, though. The fact that the whole creative team was there was a complete turnover. I mean, Tim Burton was not involved. Michael Keaton was not involved, and Billy D. Williams was not involved. So I don't know if he would have fit in. You're right. I don't, I don't think he would have been a fit in terms of the the new direction, the tone, the change in tone that they were going for. They were going for, like you said earlier, something that was a bit more slapsticky, something that was a bit more comical, something much more lighthearted. You might say farcical in some senses, as opposed to the film noir style that the 89 version had. What I did find was that um, I actually was looking very briefly today on Batman Forever and actually was surprised to see that Tim Burton was actually part of the production team for Batman Forever. Obviously, didn't have any major input because it was Joel Schumacher's film. However, he was part of the production team for Batman Forever. So he, he did have some input into the film. Obviously, not the Tim Burton style we're used to seeing, but he was part of some of the production aspects of it, which I found surprising. I don't think he was like an executive producer. He just said um, production featuring 
Timber. And so I think he just had, maybe he offered some input in terms of, you know, certain script changes or styles or so on. I don't think he had a major involvement in any part of it, but he was credited in it as being part of the production team. So I assume at some point he's had a meeting with Joel or any cast members and offered his opinions on how things should look or how things should be acted. But definitely in some sort of way was part of that team. I'll have to go back and rewatch Batman Forever now to see if there's anything that you can sort of pick out as there's a, a trademark moment or there's an image or a camera angle or a set design that, or a piece of a set design that reflects his, his style. I wonder if it was um, maybe Tim Burton's involvement that had the continuation of uh, Michael Goff as Commissioner Gordon run through the whole four films. Mm. With it being two, like two completely different styles between Tim Burton's ones and Joel Schumacher's ones. And yeah, Michael Goff's Commissioner Gordon was through all four. Sadly, the actor uh, name eludes me who plays Alfred, but again, he plays Alfred through all four films. So maybe that was some something to Tim Burton. Maybe he said, keep these characters continuing through rather than searching for a new Gordon and a new Alfred. Perhaps that's where his input was was put in. I don't know. I've not researched it enough to see, but I reckon that might have had something to do with it. Yeah. Yeah, it was funny. You, as soon as you mentioned the fact that it was the same Alfred in the four movies, I just had a total flashback to when the first movie came out. There was a merchandise tie-in with the Coca-Cola company. And there was a television commercial, at least here in the States, there was a television commercial where he holds up a can of Diet Coke and he's speaking into the phone and he's talking to Bruce Wayne and he's saying, we seem to be down to our last Diet Coke. And it was, <laughs> go out on a Coke run for, and that sounds bad, a Coke run, but go out on a <laughs> Diet Coke, Diet Coke. Other, other colas are available. Oh. <laughs> Going out on a gold run. We've just gone down the, the alternative version of Batman that not many people have seen. <laughs> this might be the director's cut that people are just waiting for DVD release. The Zack Snyder cut. Let's do the <laughs> brilliant. So, just brilliant. Uh, so the third trivia question that I have for you, the third and final one. Okay. When Alfred playfully embarrasses Bruce in front of Vicky by telling Vicky about when Bruce was a little kid and he had his first and last horseback riding lesson. Yes. Bruce jokingly says as a way of, you know, getting back at him, he says that Alfred is very important to me because without him, I would never be able to find my what? His socks. Yes. (laughs) I've redeemed myself. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't find my socks without him. Yeah, he did say that. <laughs> yes, he did. And I love that moment because the two of them are just completely in a good-natured, self-deprecating way, throwing each other under the bus. You really see the connection between the two of them, the, the bond that they have. Yeah, it's, it was a really good uh, like on-screen portrayal. Even the, the initial scenes when they were having the big, um, the, the kind of, is it a charity event in Bruce Wayne's mansion? And every time... Bruce turns a corner, Alfred's nearby. You know, he catches a pen that he sticks into a statue. He catches an empty glass that he just puts to one side. He's there waiting to catch it. He's always mindful of where Bruce is going to be and what he's going to do because he's his guardian. The end yes, he's his butler, but he's also his father figure, his guardian. You know, he, he looks after him. So, of course, he's going to be in his shadow. So, a great, a great portrayal. And even though we've seen different actors coming through as, as a Bruce Wayne Batman, the Alfred character, especially portrayed by him, and again, apologies for not having the name to hand was kind of the glue that kept all four movies together. It was the the continuation of our character. It's like when we had Judy Dench playing M 
in Pierce Brosnan's Bond run, but carried on through to Daniel yes. Craig's Bond run. That kind of, again, the glue, keeping it together, a bit of continuity, something that keeps it loyal to the previous fan base so they know what to expect and it kind of passing on the baton kind of thing. So it's it's nice to have something that connects them all together. And if even if it's something as simple as just a simple actor who is reprising a role to link all these movies together, it works well. And they're great on screen. And I just looked up the actor who plays Alfred. I don't know if I'm going to pronounce his last name correctly. It's spelled G-O-U-G-H. So would that be Gao Goff? Goff? Oh, see, I've been saying that. I thought that was um, that was the Commissioner Gordon. That's why I said Michael Goff was Commissioner Gordon, but that's that's Alfred. Ah, oh, I thought that was I thought that was Commissioner Gordon for some reason. Tony Award-winning English actor Michael Goff, you said. I I, w- I would say it was Goff, yeah. Best known for playing the Butler Alfred Pennyworth in the first uh, movies. Yeah, I was I was adamant that Michael Goff was Commissioner Gordon. Hence me saying Commissioner Gordon earlier on. But yeah, Michael Goff. Yeah, now we know. Great, a great Oh, of course it was. Of course, oh, I've got some studying to do. I really have. Well, as you know, usually every episode has a fun facts countdown, and Davia has kindly agreed to prepare some of his own to contribute. So I yield the floor to you. What do you got? Thank you. I only have a couple of factoids. I um, I don't think I've got ten, but I'll, I'll add as many as I as I think I can put in there. One thing I did find interesting was that an early script for the Batman movie featured both Robin and Penguin. This was not obviously not meant to be until later movies, well, the, the Batman Returns movie. But an initial script said that the Joker was going to be actual a, a corrupt politician instead of being a gangster who guns down Bruce's parents. He was actually meant to be a, a corrupt politician who sort of is more menacing and they also wanted to go into much more depth into Bruce's origin story, the whole death of his parents and what caused him to go through trauma to become the bat and so on. Obviously, it didn't happen in this version. Those kind of storylines we've seen in the likes of Christian Bale's movie, they did focus a lot on Batman Begins about the backstory and what drove him to become the hero. So possibly a blessing in disguise. The film itself is really good. It, it didn't necessarily need a huge backstory. Most people that are a fan of Batman or any superhero kind of know the gist by now. They know the backstory, the origins, that kind of thing. They just want to see the continuations. So I think, it, I think it worked out well. I don't think Robin would have been best used in this movie being a, isn't it, an early version of Batman, but early scripts were going to feature Robin and Penguin. So an interesting factoid. Yeah. There's one fact for you. I have more. I have more. Don't worry. No. This isn't over here, folks. The iconic character of the Joker wasn't offered to Jack Nicholson first, believe it or not. He wasn't the first choice. Actors such as James Woods, Willem Dafoe, even David Bowie were considered for the role. And, and this was an amazing choice for me. Robin Williams, who actually really wanted to be the Joker, was considered highly for the part. I dare say Jack Nicholson was the better choice because he's so great in the role. But to see Robin Williams play the Joker would have been something of a personal high for me. It would have been amazing to see and a, a fantastic choice either way. So we nearly had Robin Williams as the Joker. I'm going to steal what you said earlier in an alternate universe. That is a movie that I would love to see as well. And it probably, yeah. I don't know, it, it very well could have worked. I think I can get cut off. The comedic aspect of Rob Williams' style alone would, it would definitely make it a like different Joker. Yeah. yeah. I think it may have been more the sort of camp Joker style like we've seen in the Adam West version. But uh, oh, one, one that would have been worth seeing. Another fact, Kim Basinger. Kim Basinger? 
again, depending on your pronunciation, was not the original choice for Vicky Vale, the reporter slash photographer. Sean Young, most famous for being in Blade Runner. And I think she was an Ace Ventura pet detector, to my knowledge. I think she was. She was, was yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Vicky Vale could have been portrayed by Sean Young, which again was would have been an interesting choice. I like Kim, ba- Kim Basinger's version. But uh, again, it's nice to think what an alternative actor would have brought to the role. And I have one other factoid for you, which is to do with Robin. The first drafts of Robin, whether they were going to bring him in the first movie or the second or onwards, was originally offered to none other than Eddie Murphy. He was uh, approached to, to play Robin. Now, I get it. Back in the 80s, he was a really high up there comedian. I mean, he is a funny actor even now, but he was at his height in the 80s as a stand-up comic. And I get that he would have been a great choice to play Robin. He's, you know, he's quite, he's quite out there. He's fast-paced. He's quick-witted. He's athletic, or at least he, he was back in the day. And he basically when he's doing like Beverly Hills Cop and such. So it could have been an interesting choice. I just don't know if it might have been a bit too, too comedic to play such a character, especially with Keaton's version being quite dark and gothic, like we've discussed earlier. But, but yeah, Eddie Murphy is Robin. I don't know. What do you think that would have worked? Again, it might have worked. It just would have been a very different. It would have resulted in a very different movie. I think Eddie Murphy's comedy at the time, anyway, had a certain degree of there was a severity to it that. I think would have come through and it could very well have worked given the, given the dark grim style of the film. It's one of those things where you mm. think about it and it's like, you can see it going in either direction. I think there's, it was, um, there's one other thing as well with, again, with alternative choices when they were, this is Warner brothers I'm referring to when they were looking for directors for the movie. Again, the first choice wasn't Tim Burton, despite what you might, you know, perceive as the, the one of the greater versions of Batman we've seen on screen because of the directing choice. Joe Dante was approached, who directed uh, Gremlins, uh, was yes. approached to, to direct the movie, and so was Ivan Reitman, the iconic Ghostbusters director. They were both approached to bring Batman to the big screen. Again, could have worked. Alternative directors, alternative visions, but Tim Burton's version is, is the one that we all love so much. But it's always nice to think what if, what could have been if someone else took the helm. So yeah, this is uh, another interesting factoid for you. Someone else may have been the driving force behind ba- Batman and it might have been something completely different. One of the actors that could have been was Bill Murray. He could have been playing uh, Bruce Wayne. I, I, mm, I love Bill Murray, don't get me wrong, but playing a superhero, come on, I don't think it's up his, uh, up his alley, for lack of a better he's, word. He's Dr. Really Peter Venkman. He's Bob. What about Bob? He's, yeah. I love, I mean, this is just have a little nod to Ghostbusters, especially with the new one coming out quite soon. Uh, I think it is, it, is in, it is in the first movie, in the first Ghostbusters movie, when he goes to check out Dana's apartment, which isn't a euphemism, by the way. Excuse me. Um, and he makes his presence known to the ghost in the room when he's like, that's right, it's Dr. Venkman. Like, they're going to respond, you know? <laughs> like, who is this guy? If I was a ghost in that room, I'd be like, yeah, and who are you? Who are you meant to be? It's Dr. Venkman guy. Um, All of a sudden, you hear this ghost in the kitchen saying, Yeah, we're in here. You want a sandwich? Exactly. (laughs) We want you broken the eggs. Let's make the rest of the meal for you. You know, (laughs) Bill Murray just isn't isn't Batman for me. But again, like I've said, different visions, different directors, different actors. It could have been, it could have been a good movie, but sadly, we'll never know. Right. I mean, they took a gamble with Michael Keaton. I mean, Mr. Mom and Beetlejuice, like we said earlier, you can see why some people would have said, What an odd casting decision. 
but it so, worked out well. Worked it out well. No, it did work out well. He's one of those guys that really does wear a curled, not nowadays, but a curly mullet back in the day. He rocked it. He rocked that really well. The mullet, yes. Oh, the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> I look back and I cringe. What a time. And now it's time for the final segment of today's show, the poll results and the trivia. So on my socials this week, I put out there images of four different Batmobiles. Michael Keaton's from Batman and 1992's Batman Returns. Val Kilmer's from 1995's Batman Forever. George Clooney's from 1997's Batman and Robin. And finally, Christian Bale's from Christopher Nolan's 21st Century Era Dark Knight Trilogy. I would have loved to included more Batmobile designs, but Twitter limits any post to just four photo attachments. The poll asked which Batmobile design is your favorite, and on Twitter, it looks like Val Kilmer's Batmobile got zero votes. Sorry, Val. George Clooney's came in third, followed by Christian Bale's coming in second, and Michael Keaton's coming out on top with 71% of the votes. As for the feedback that came in over Twitter, from Scotland, Ian Graham from the podcast Cult Connections commented that Adam West was his preference, which is most definitely fair enough. You may recall that Ian was on Silver Screeners a few episodes back to talk about the 90th anniversaries of both Dracula and Frankenstein. Ian, we gotta connect soon, because I'd love to collaborate with you again. Great hearing from you, as it always is, and I'm continuing to love listening to your show. Check it out, folks. Cult Connections. Another previous guest on the show, Tommy Goodwin from the podcast Rewatch, Relive, Repeat says over on Instagram that he had the action figures in the Batmobile from Batman Forever. That was his favorite as a kid, along with the Batboat, because the Batmobile toy was only a one-seater. I'm going to have to look those up online, because I don't recall those from the mid-90s, but to be honest, that's because I am old. So, <laughs> Tommy, you too. Let's get in touch about future plans. My best to you and your wife and co-host, Shannon. This is another show that I'm subscribed to and listen to every time a new episode drops. Good stuff coming out of New Zealand, which is where they're from. Also on Instagram is Liz, my sister-in-law, from right here in Massachusetts, who comments succinctly, Tumblr, no contest for me. Liz, by the way, is married to my wife's brother. My wife's sister is married to a guy named Greg, so Liz and Greg and I were the three in-laws to my wife's immediate family. You, you followed that, right? The three of us, Liz and Greg and I, we have a private Instagram chat group together called The Outlaws, because we're cool like that. The three of us outlaws recently saw the new Dune that just came out, and we're hoping to zoom together and break that film down in an episode in the not-too-distant future, so stay tuned. And over on Facebook, to the Silver Screeners Facebook group that is open to anyone who would like to join, there were more responses. David P. says that he loves the Keaton Batmobile, but give him the Affleck Batmobile to drive fear into the cowardly and superstitious lot. <laughs> Love it. Great feedback, David. Thank you. Mary C., one of the reigning trivia champs of this podcast, she makes it clear that she goes for the Keaton Batmobile, as well as Keaton himself in the role. But Edward I. feels differently. He says the Dark Knight Batmobile, which he thinks was updated perfectly with Christian Bale as the best Batman. Thanks to both of you for offering up your thoughts. And from England, there's my buddy Stu from the Stu and Alpod, who also says the Bale Batmobile, says it's the only one that has Bluetooth connection for his phone. Hey, you know, no one can contest that. <laughs> Great hearing from your friend, and I'm excited that we're getting closer to working out a collaboration, Stu, his co-host Al, and I on a future episode here on the Cohen Brothers, so everyone again, stay tuned. And taking the final lap around the track for episode 29, there's the matter of the trivia. Last time we looked at 1979's The Amityville Horror, with a couple of references to the 2005 remake. The question asked about actress Chloe Grace Moretz, who was in the remake, 
and has become an accomplished actress over the years. In 2013, she headlined another remake of a horror movie, an adaptation of Stephen King's first novel. The original film starred Sissy Spacek and came out in 1976, and the correct answer is... Carrie. And we have a couple of shining stars who are collecting more personalized memes like nobody's business. We have Mary C. Mary, there you are. I know that you've attended a few of my public film lectures over Zoom. You joined the Facebook group back in the spring, I think it was, pretty much around the same time that this show got launched. So thank you for sticking with it for the past six or seven months. And the other listener slash trivia conqueror, Stu, there you are. You are the man. He also correctly says Carrie, and Stu actually answered a previous question as well. Two episodes back, we looked at the 30th anniversary of Silence of the Lambs, and the question then was what film got Jodie Foster, at the age of 14, her first Oscar nomination. And Stu says Taxi Driver, the gritty 1976 dramatic and psychological thriller with Robert De Niro in top form. So Mary, Stu, you're both in top form as well. Thanks for playing along again. And always great to hear from anyone who at any point contributes to the polls, or to the trivia, or both. And this episode's trivia question is fresh out of the oven, so here it is. Currently scheduled for release in March of 2022, The Batman, starring Robert Pattinson, is on the horizon. You have the big spotlight bat insignia shining in the sky as a countdown. What series of vampire films did Robert Pattinson star in alongside Kristen Stewart? And like I always say, it doesn't matter when you send in your answer. Whenever you're catching this episode, just go ahead and submit your response for a personalized meme and a shout-out in the following episode. Send your answers on over. And as always, if you have any follow-up questions or have any comments, thoughts of your own that you want to share on whoever has ever played Batman, memories of the 1989 film, thoughts on the Batmobiles, who made the best Joker, the best Robin, or anything else Batman-related, just hit me up in my socials. FilmBuff1974 on Twitter, the film group Silver Screen is on Facebook, Frank Mendoza 1974 on Instagram, or you can email me at frankmendoza at yahoo.com. And I want to give you the chance to remind everybody, again, any of your contact information, your socials, any information about your own show that you wanted to put out there. Yeah, of course. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Um, as I say, I'm, I'm Dave A. So if you like your nerdy stuff, then the podcast is simply called I'd Give That 10 Minutes. The premise is give it 10 minutes. If you like it, you're going to stay for longer. That's how I kind of gauge the reactions. All the socials are under the same at it at Davy A Ten Mins. Simple as that. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all via at Davy A Ten Mins. Send me a message. Let me know if you want to find a specific topic to talk about, or if there's a specific interest you want to talk about. Come on as a guest. Get in touch. I'm always happy to speak to new people. So if you want to come on and join the show and get involved, it's all at Davy A Ten Mins. Simple as that, really. And that does it for episode 29. Davy, thank you again for taking the time to come on the show. And thanks to all of you for listening. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. And if you could take a second to give this show a rating on Apple, iTunes, or wherever you're listening to your podcasts, please feel free to do so to help with the algorithms and get more people to discover the show. And if you feel compelled to leave a quick review of Silver Screeners, I would be forever grateful for any honest feedback. Thank you again. My name is Frank. I'll be seeing you in the next episode. And keep on screening. And I leave you with the soothing sounds of Bats in the Belfry.